Hey everyone, I'm Frederick Dishan, and I write the Necker Substack. Today I'm talking with Adam Mead. Adam is the author of The Complete Financial History of Berkshire Hathaway, which is quite a mouthful and an extensive book. I learned a lot from it. The most valuable pieces to me were the lessons and the summaries he, he did for each decade, which give you a concise view of how 55 years of, of investing, deal-making, decision-making fit together you really get a sense of how the how the mistakes, the successes, how it all ties together and how Berkshire evolved over time. So in this conversation, Adam and I, we kind of nerded out on a few on a few different things. On the conglomerates, I've written about Charlie Bluedorn, and that was in part based on reading a few um, paragraphs in, in Adam's book. So we talked about that. We talked about the importance of management talent and how Buffett evolved in insurance and there was a lot of lot of entrepreneurial risk taking and some things that didn't work in the early days of Berkshire. We talked about the importance of uh, reinvestment returns. Adam has a great chart which I'm going to share on the Substack on going in returns, basically the valuations of certain deals. We talked about uh, the management style, the extreme um, delegation. So it was it was great. I really enjoyed talking to Adam, but it is pretty nerdy. And so be be prepared for an hour of uh, of just Berkshire talk, and uh, yeah, if you if you enjoy that, I would encourage you to check out Adam's book. Like I said, I've learned a lot from it, um, and of course, none of this is investment advice. Always do your own research. And with that, let's go. So Adam, let's jump right into it. Thanks for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Um, really enjoyed the book too, and obviously have a ton of questions, and. Especially, I want I want to kick off, I guess, in a, a little bit of an unusual area, which is the conglomerates that basically preceded mm -hmm. Berkshire. And I, I wrote this piece on Charlie Bluedorn, and I think your book really put this together for me. I didn't really under I, I didn't really see it that way beforehand. But you made the point that Buffett and Munger had the opportunity to study these conglomerates um, and their rise and fall before they or as they were starting to build Berkshire. Um, so I'd love for you, and you pulled out some amazing data. So I'd love for you, if you could just give me a sense or like, how much did you dig into that? What did you learn? How do you think about that dynamic? Yeah, it, it really is interesting, uh, just to kind of put Berkshire Hathaway as we know it today in context. And I think if you asked Buffett and Munger explicitly, and they've, they've kind of touched on this in the past, but they, they really have benefited from a degree of luck. Now they've taken their genius and they've run with the hand that they were dealt, but it's no, it's no doubt that they were dealt a pretty good hand, really starting to, to, to build Berkshire Hathaway at the tail end of the 1960s, you know, call it 1970 on, which was right after, you know, the, the go-go years uh, of the 1960s. And, you know, a great book is called the go-go years by uh, John Brooks. Um, highly recommend that. Uh, another one is uh, The Rise and Fall of the Conglomerate Kings by Robert Sobel. Uh, that was another one that I mm. uh, got some good information on. Nice. Uh, then there's actually, so one of the earlier con conglomerators uh, was a guy uh, named, uh, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on his, his first name now, uh, Little. And uh, he wrote this book called How to Lose $100 Million, which is kind of a nice catchy title. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess the, the basic message is that the, the conglomerate as a form, I guess the, the first 
sort of real conglomerate was uh, American Home Products in, in the late 1930s. Um, I do have some of those uh, old Moody's reports on, on my website, theoraclesclassroom.com. So you can go check those out. Uh, but it kind of, those, the, the form had been around and that's kind of the, the message. And these guys um, had tried and had, had done various things of putting businesses together, um, sort of the, the basic idea of, okay, I have business X and it's maybe pretty volatile and let me, let me attach to it a business that is less volatile or inversely volatile. You know, the classic example being, you know, um, even at modern times, just pairing a, a snow plowing business with a landscaping business, right? Mm. You know, different seasons, that kind of, that's the basic idea. <clears throat> um, these guys got in trouble in varying degrees. And I, I think your piece on, on uh, Blue Dorn does a really good job of highlighting the fact that they, they weren't crooks. I, I think that can kind of be mis, misconstrued that, you know, these guys weren't, um, uh, you know, the, the Enrons of their day trying to just um, put something over on, on investors, but they kind of yeah. strayed a little bit in terms of uh, messing around with the accounting or saying, geez, the market's valuing our conglomerate at 20 times earnings, 15 times earnings, and we're going to buy this other company at five or six times earnings. And I can buy anything that I want as long as it's less than, than my PE and it's going to magically transform my conglomerate into something better. Now, the problem with that is it, it ignored sort of the underlying economics of everything. They just bought things to buy things, um, again, messed around with the accounting in certain uh, circumstances. Uh, and kind of just strayed in, in certain respects. Again, a lot of these, like you mentioned in your Blue Dern piece, uh, <clears throat> you know, auto parts, um, they, they generally started as pretty basic businesses and then kind of morphed into uh, some, these sort of unruly conglomerates. And I use the word unruly because they just kind of got caught up in the times, yeah. caught up in, in the Wall Street um, heyday and you know they were courted by wall street and they were egged on by wall street to do these deals uh but ultimately they were kind of a house of cards in in certain circumstances and they came came either crashing down or kind of a slow burn and uh, again in the case of blue dorn just kind of uh, petered out he died and then you know dismantled or um, yeah so it's it's an interesting time i i haven't i wanted to put a, a section in the book but we were already at uh well over two hundred thousand words Yes. Book long enough as it is at 750 pages um but so i didn't i didn't go super deep on each of these um you know i mentioned ling temco Vought, i mentioned itt uh textron um you know th those those ones are certainly some of the bigger ones but but there were others and, and others have gone deeper on yeah. them so I, i'm by no means an expert but i think it does paint yeah. a picture the sort of the early days of berkshire hathaway yeah I, well i think you just made well, a couple of things stood out to me. One was um, there were a lot of, I, I was just struck there were some of these early parallels, especially with Blue Doran, who also started sort of as a Ben Graham, you know, um, follower. And his his first deal was similarly kind of buying into this very un, deeply undervalued kind of turnaround situation. And then it strikes me that at some point the paths diverge and especially you, you pulled together some fantastic data on dilution and it's just this idea that to maintain the discipline and um, think about the value of the 
you know, per share equity and not courting, not ever going out to Wall Street. Like it, the, the contrast illustrated to me how unique um, some of these aspects of, of Berkshire and, and Buffett were in, in terms of never getting caught up in, you know, trying to, to court Wall Street and, and using your multiple aggressively and just manufacturing growth. Um, but it also something that that comes something that I really enjoyed about the book, and I'm rereading the shareholder letters. And so it's really becoming clear to me is like, the early days, um, you're doing a great job of sort of recapping each decade. And so the org and the connections and the learnings, both from mistakes and successes become a lot more clear. And you have this fantastic capital allocation chart, and you can kind of see the the, the biggest deals for each decade. So I'd love to go a little bit back um, really to the earliest one or, you know, a couple of decades of Berkshire, um, because it's just becoming clear to me how entrepreneurial it was, how small and like how much experimentation, like how different it was then versus now. So like, um, and there are kind of these deals that shape Buffett that are kind of, I guess, completely forgotten, right. That start the insurance business. And, and so I'd love to, you know, get your take on, um, you know, that, that, that earliest time period and, and what stood out to you when you, when you looked at that, what, what the lessons are, um, and kind of where, where the arc of the, uh, of the company under Buffett starts. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I, so my book really focuses on Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah. Others, uh, including uh, Alice Schroeder have encompassed Buffett's life, which, you know, his, his early days selling golf balls or his pinball machines or selling Coca-Cola door to door, you know, Buffett never lost that entrepreneurial streak. And so I think uh, people sometimes think of him as, well, they think of him as a lot of different things, but, you know, just the investor, but he really is a good manager. And that manager has uh, an entrepreneurial bent and he's not afraid to try things. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, I guess just to kind of start, where he he began in 1965 at Berkshire Hathaway. Of course, his career preceded that, but just kind of focusing on Berkshire Hathaway. Um, I mean, there's a couple of businesses around Omaha that that he just again he was he lived in Omaha, still lives in Omaha, and and a guy like that, so attuned to business, is is going to just be curious about all these businesses around him. Well, one of them was National Indemnity. This was sort of the real the real first big deal of Berkshire Hathaway, 1967, he bought National Indemnity uh, and its sister company, National Fire and Marine, for $8.6 million. <clears throat> in hindsight, he said he would have been better off buying that in an entity outside of Berkshire Hathaway. So it was sort of a mistake on his part to bring the legacy Berkshire Hathaway shareholders along with him. Who knows why that was the case? Um, he just used it as his vehicle and sort of the, the rest is history. But that was sort of the first transformative deal based right, right in Omaha. Um, it's still, still based uh, there today. Um, but, but that gave Buffett not only a platform to invest the float, which was almost $20 million. So by, again, even just looking at the deal in isolation, he didn't fully appreciate the, the value of float. So all the unpaid um, losses, the, the premiums that uh, customers had paid, he could he could invest that. So you have Buffett taking the capital from shrinking the in, 
the textile business, using that to buy another business and investing some of that. He, he increased the marketable securities portfolio at that time. Uh, but National Indemnity, so it was a good platform in itself and that it was profitable. It showed him that the insurance business did not have to be just a uh, sort of statistically riskless uh, type of an investment. Uh, Jack Ringwald, who was the, the manager of, of that business, showed him that any any risk is, uh, you can take any risk as long as it's priced appropriately. So really starting the insurance uh, business for Berkshire Hathaway, which uh, today is it's a powerhouse in, in insurance. I mean, that's really where the origins of, of that stem. It, and I thought one chart that stood out to me, and I think you've done some terrific work around just the insurance business, and you've pointed out, uh, you constructed this decades-long chart of basically the cost of um, mm -hmm. of the insurance business. And um, as I was going through the, through the shareholder letters, um, right, so, so he buys national indemnity, and there's kind of this seed kernel. And then um, there's a period of experimentation trying to build smaller insurance businesses. There's also a time period where the insurance business loses a lot of money. Um, I think this is sometime in the 80s, where um, mm -hmm. 70s, 80s, where I mean, he talks about the competition. And then over time, right, like other things emerge, the reinsurance, Geico comes in-house, he buys that. And and today you look at it, it's just this massive powerhouse, right? There's this massive amount of float. But like all of those were like small iterative steps of, of trying things out. I'm, I'm curious um, how you think about that in terms of how important was it to have that right manager to learn that from? Or also, do you think there were ever time periods when you thought about abandoning it? I, I'm, I'm just trying to like put myself into his shoes at the time. Not everything worked. And there were time periods when like it was a money lose. Yes, you had the float, but it was losing money. So I'm trying to figure out like how how certain was it that this was going to be a success within within Berkshire and like what were kind of the iterative learning steps as he as he built that out? Yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, again, Buffett has this reputation for being totally hands off, uh, delegation, just shy of abdication. But he and I suspect in the earlier days, he was much more involved from probably the standpoint of, you know, a chairman of a company being really I mean, he's just he's so curious about business. I'm sure he had conversations with um with Jack Ringwald just like he does you know almost daily I think with with the G Jane so he buys national indemnity sees that insurance as a platform is a, a wonder can be a wonderful business in itself and provide this float so then he goes off and so this is the early 1970s and forms what are called home state companies because at that point each each insurance entity was limited to its own state, so home state. Um, Cornhusker Casualty in 1970. Um, they formed Lakeland Fire and Casualty Company, which is a Minnesota-based um, uh, home state company in 1971. That closed in 1982, so we'll get to we'll get to that in a second. Texas United Insurance Company, um, the Insurance Company of Iowa in 1973, which was then merged into Cornhusker in 1980. Kansas Fire and Casualty Company in 1977. Um, they bought a Chicago-based um, home and auto insurance business uh, called uh, was called Home and Auto. But that business, they tried to expand to Miami, but because a combination of being a different market, some accounting issues that didn't bring to light 
losses quick enough, that ended up being a failure. <clears throat> so you have, um, you have all this experimentation. You have Buffett taking this idea that insurance can be a very good business and just trying to see what works. Let's, let's scale this thing, right? Um, he's pointed to his own failings as some of the reason why some of these ultimately failed. Again, I suspect it was partially true, partially just, you know, this is the experimentation and you have to see what works. Different markets uh, operate differently. Uh, but, but so that was, that was sort of the 1970s, this period of let's build this thing. Um, some failures in there, but from 1982 to 1992, that was the period you referred to. They lost $522 million from underwriting alone. Now, it sounds like a lot, and it, and it was, <clears throat> but the insurance business overall was profitable because of the investment income. And so you say, well, how do you evaluate that? Well, uh, and you, you referred to my chart. So, and, and this, is, this is Buffett, not me creating this. Um, he looks at, okay, how do I evaluate float? How do I judge its usefulness? Well, one, re one way to do that is to, to view it as borrowing money, because essentially what you're, you're taking money that's it's a liability in your balance sheet. It's owed to the policyholders, whether in future coverage, in the, in the terms of um, <clears throat> unearned premiums or unpaid losses. So that's money that's owed to the shareholder, uh, to the policyholders, excuse me, in one way or another. Well, how much would you pay for that capital in the equivalent amount of debt? And Buffett says, let's compare it to the government bond rate. So of those 13 years, um, or sorry, uh, th that, that decade from 82 to 92, there was only three years uh, 83 to 85, that their cost of float as measured by the underwriting loss divided by average float was more than the US government bond. So even though they lost money in, in those 11 years, their cost was still less than the US government could borrow. So it's not a terrible result. And other insurers manage to an underwriting loss because they, they accept that it's going to cost something. They accept this explicit cost of capital. Berkshire realized that it really should target a profit first and foremost. Buffett really realized the danger in incenting growth because it led, you know, anybody can, anybody can write a policy. It's, you know, I spent 10 years in banking uh, and the saying was, you know, anybody can lend money. The, the trick is to get it back. So anybody can write an insurance policy. It's just, you don't know your costs. You might not know your costs for 10 years. Yeah. And so that, that I think was, was one of the key things that he learned was we have to focus on profitability 100%. Let premiums fall where they may. And there was a period, uh, National Indemnity saw its, its premiums decline uh, from the mid 80s to the late 90s. Um, something like 350 million to, to 50 million. I mean, just ex an extreme decline. Um, and it just demonstrates that's a long time, right? I mean, when you're reading, yeah. you, you read yeah. the book or even just researching, you say, well, okay, a decade and this, and it's like, wait a minute, that's, that's, that's over that's 10 a long years time of... to, to hold on to something yeah. that on the surface. And you have to, and, and as you go through the letters, right? Every year he's like, the conditions are difficult. Like he has to explain this over and over again to shareholders. And I was just thinking like, yeah, you, he stuck with it. So he could see that long-term, you know, conditions would eventually come back and this was still a business, but 
um, you have a, you have a great. Um, I'm not going to read out the quote, but you have a terrific uh, quote in there um, from the early days where you basically lay out what kind of business it was, right? And you said there was no master plan. It was all opportunity. You called it patient opportunism um, from, a, from this dying textile mill. Oh, here it is. Okay, so owners of Berkshire owned an insurance operation, a bank, a newspaper, and through blue chip stamps, you know, a, another bank, Wesco, I think, and a candy company. And so I was kind of thinking, I was thinking about this quote and I was like, yes, there, there was this time period, like there's this interesting person running this company and there's a collection of businesses, but it doesn't seem readily apparent that this is a collection of either great businesses or that this would necessarily compound at very high rates in the future. Now you may have a different opinion if you read the shareholder letter, because there's very distinct language in that. But if I was thinking, like, I'm looking at these decades, at what point do you think it kind of really becomes apparent that this becomes a, you know, a cohesive platform that, you know, that you as an outside shareholder that you'd want to bet on. If, if you haven't been like, if you didn't know Buffett intimately, you weren't a, you know, limited partner in his hedge fund days and, and you really, you know, knew him as an astute investor. You look at this collection, like this mini conglomerate, like, is this, when does it become apparent that this is going to be something very special um, in, in, in terms of what he's creating and, and the, the potential for just long-term, I guess, uh, growth and appreciation of capital. Yeah, it's really hard because, again, to see the mistakes in the insurance business, to see the, the losses in insurance. Um, but I would say, and I'd like to think I would I would pick up on it, but, but I don't know. I mean, um, probably the, mid, the mid-80s. You know, you'd like to say, well, geez, I would get in there, you know, super early and I would get this thing at rock bottom. But I, I, I don't know if I don't know if I would. Um, I think you'd like to think, again, that the candor of management, even in, in one of the very first reports um, that Buffett had control over uh, when he when he came to Berkshire Hathaway, um, he he adjusted profit. So back back in the early days, there was the accounting. You didn't have to flow a write off of the assets through the income statement and he, he comes right out and explicitly says, you know, our profits are actually reported too high. It should actually be this, you know, so these little clues kind of started to show themselves, you know, you have a manager that's talking about his mistakes. I think that shows uh, confidence. Um, I mean, I, I, and again, I would like to think that the quality of the accounting was uh, apparent in the earlier days, just simple, easy to understand. Now they didn't do themselves any favors by having this, you know, this patient opportunism. It was like, let's grab cash wherever it is. We don't care about appearances. And so um, they created this tangled web of um, Berkshire Hathaway, you know, buying an interest in blue chip stamps. And then, oh geez, Berkshire is, is pretty good value. Let's take blue chip stamps capital and buy some of Berkshire Hathaway stock. And they had diversified retailing, which owns some of both. And so they literally got in, investigated by the SEC is like, hey, this could be a fraud because frauds often have these complicated ownership structures. Well, that was just Buffett saying, ah, geez, this business has cash. I don't care about accounting, the appearances. I only care about the economics of this. So I don't care where it's actually bought. So instead of Saying, well, geez, we'll have blue chip stamps pay a dividend 
Um, and then we'll use that cash to buy something. They just use blue chip stamps uh, for one example, but they did this on, on multiple different levels and then cross ownership. And so again, I think at that time, and we're talking, you know, the 1970s, maybe early eighties, it wasn't completely apparent. So then by 1978, they merged with diversified retailing, 1983, they merged with blue chip stamps. You, you eliminate some of this uh, spaghetti, if you will. And then by the mid 1980s, you say, okay, simpler business. They have these operations. Insurance is a pretty big piece of this. Um, they're closing down the textile business. Okay, that was a good capital allocation decision. Um, 1980, they had to divest of uh, Illinois National Bank and Trust, which they bought in 1969. Uh, the Bank Holding uh, Act prevented them from, from keeping it. And how did how did Buffett structure that uh, that divestiture? Well, he he used you know this timeless principle of "I cut, you choose," and I think he uses that that exact phrase where he sets the uh, shareholders had a choice of Berkshire Hathaway shares, shares of the bank, or a mixture of both. And Buffett said, "I'll take whatever's left over." And so there's again these little qualitative things that happen. Um, just over a time that, that really show you quality of the manager. So I, I would like to think that if, if I were paying attention in the mid 1980s as, you know, a, a newborn or, or toddler, if I had that, uh, that foresight, I, I would, I would have picked up Berkshire Hathaway shares, but um, I kind of liken it almost to, to how Berkshire Hathaway has bought into Apple, you know, quote unquote mm. late, but they were, they could see the trajectory happening and they were able to get in. So. Yeah. I also, it, I think it's interesting because it strikes me that each decade and, and you split the decades starting with um, Buffett taking control. So it's not calendar decades, mm -hmm. but each one seems to have one or maybe several kind of themes. And right. So in the set in, in the seventies, right, there's this bad bear market. He can put, and you have a great chart on where he puts capital to work acquisitions versus um, versus stocks and, and how that later comes back in, uh, in terms of profits. Um, but it seems to me that especially the seventies is sort of this time period, like he finds all these bargains, but then it takes a while. This is like, um, you know, deferred outperformance, right? Like it takes a while un until all of that suddenly takes off. And suddenly in the eighties, I think he kind of, right. He gets discovered. There's the, um, the decade from 1974 to end of 1978, he compounded or the stock compounded at 28.5%. So I feel like as a shareholder, right, if you're, even if you're very early and you recognize that there's still this long period of, okay, we're, we're, we're laying the foundation. And then all of a sudden, right. Um, things start to start to go his way. So yeah, I always wonder like, um, to what extent ultimately, like, you know, publicity and picking up on it is, is an almost uh, a contra counter indicator of like, oh, okay. Like now I'm seeing it, but now I've seen it because a lot of things, um, suddenly, suddenly played out. Um, and you're kind of coming at the back end of great performance. Obviously it's still, it's still great long-term, but, um, I just, I just think you did a really good job as like, I don't know, capturing that. And I was like, okay, each, each decade, um, I love it. Um, you, you've called C's. And obviously, C's has been a little bit beaten to, to death in terms of analysis. But you're like, <laughs> sure. okay, this is the this is the most important deal, just because it informed 
Coke, but also the this reinvestment theme. And and you make you make the case that you know the conglomerate being able to reallocate capital without the tax consequences is is an inherent advantage. Like I'd love to if you could touch on C's or or anything else that really stands out as kind of transformative deals that um, you know shape things and are maybe either under discussed or are really important to to understand. Um, Kind of the the evolution um, of of Berkshire and, and and how it turned into what it is today. Maybe before it turns into like a capital allocation problem, and he buys you know utilities and, and the railroad mm-hmm. to just put capital to work. But like on the way there, what, what stood out to you? Where where did you just spend your time understanding um, his decision? Yeah, certainly uh, sees you know um, to the extent that it's it's, it's beaten beaten up uh, or or discussed a lot. I mean, it's just it's such an important acquisition um you know paying up for quality and and all of those this kind of shifts and you mentioned um buffett says if we didn't buy c's we would buy coke um but i guess you know and and there you know the entrepreneurial uh spirit i mean uh, buffett uh, in this letter again is on my my website he writes a letter to chuck huggins and says you know geez i just went out and, and i saw this one store and, and our candy was sitting next to Russell Stover and it was kind of a mess and you know let's let's use these psychological tricks to um to keep our candy front of mind and make it have apparent scarcity i mean that's buffett the entrepreneur that's buffett the manager um so i think people a lot of times just focus on well geez you know it had all this it has all this uh throws off gobs of cash it doesn't require capital and you know what a great business but they've tried and tried and tried to expand seas tried to open some on on the east coast those kind of failed um, they tried to expand out of southern california those didn't do as well so they're learning i mean when when buffett finds something that works he, he tries to push it and i think that's another one of his key his key roles within berkshire and i hope that this continues with with Greg Abel, and I, and I believe it is in the sense of you don't just have this delegation by uh, this delegation just just shy of abdication. That's not a hands off. Uh, it's hands off in the sense of not meddling, but mm-hmm. you still have an informed observer. And so I think that is the key where Buffett's getting fed all of this data. You know, he has this uh, river of data coming into Omaha. And I think he communicates his thinking to managers through his questions. Um, and again, with C's, okay, let's let's be a little bit more aggressive in trying to price the product because we think we have pricing power. Let's mm-hmm. let's let's try to experiment, see if we can uh, open some other stores in in different markets. Uh, later on, Geico, his, his Buffett's reasoning was, Geico drivers are above average drivers, therefore their credit will be better than average let's offer a geico credit card geico management didn't think it would work buffett said no let's try this and i think they lost 50 million dollars or something um again not he, he he put the mistake on him he credited geico's management but he he wasn't afraid to lose some money to try something that if it did work could be pretty big um, so I, I think with c's you have that in spades as well as the fact that you have a business that doesn't require a lot of capital it really can't grow that much or that fast and so let's not try to go out and buy 
you know, we're not going to vertically integrate and buy a, a candy processing machines. We're not going to buy, you know, try to go out and buy a Russell Stover. We're going to stick that business to what we know, to what it is, and just take the cash and reallocate it elsewhere. So that ability to have the capital allocation options and then the discipline to do that and not just keep it in the business was something that it's outside of the business, but it's related to it. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I actually, I never thought about it that way, but, but yes. Yeah, so, cause they talk obviously a lot about opportunity cost and, um, it's true that there's probably, I mean, I, I keep thinking a lot about how he thinks about management and, and maybe you have a perspective on which people were particularly influential in, in shaping his, um, his approach there. But so a lot of, I think a lot of Berkshire comes back to picking the right management or picking great people, then structuring these incentives correctly and sort of not falling into these various traps. Like, yes, we bought a candy business. I actually, I think it's brilliant that you point this out. We bought a candy business and like, maybe it doesn't grow that much, but like, well, we could buy other things to try to build the candy unit. That's what happened. I think with, with Blue Dorn or some of the other conglomerates, you get into one business. Now this is a new business unit and maybe it's aerospace. I was like, well, let's buy more things in aerospace versus the Berkshire, you know, the opportunity cost approach of like, well, we have this unit, but whatever else we could allocate our capital to, like, you know, there's a lot of other opportunities out there and, it, and it's not, but, but there's probably a push from, from management. So I'm curious how you think about some of the influential managers or how, um, I guess, how you put, how you put that system or how you developed even that, that whole approach. Cause it's not, but it's unique. So like, where does that come from or where, where do you look for guidance or where there, um, times when you learn by, by mistake, um, from, you know, um, having, having the right, I think in the insurance business, for example, there was a little bit of a rotation in management earlier. So I'm, I'm curious, or maybe after Ringworld retired, not a hundred percent sure. Curious how, what, what your take is on, on management incentives and, and this kind of, and that dynamic. Yeah. I, again, I, I think so Buffett, this whole idea of, of extreme delegation, I, I think comes from the fact that Buffett and Munger started as stock pickers. So if you're buying Wrigley's stock or Disney's stock or, you know, some of these other sort of uh, little junky businesses in the earlier days, and you're buying just a, a non-controlling interest in it, you don't have the day-to-day -day responsibility for management anyway. So what is the difference between owning, you know, a 5% position in owning a 100% position, you have the ability to direct the actions of that company, but should you? And I, I think this is the, sort of the key to, to, to Berkshire was being almost agnostic in the, in the sense of ownership level, we're still gonna let that manager run his or her business, and we're only attracted to these businesses that are good anyways, so why would we go in and meddle? Um, when they bought uh, a pretty big chunk of capital cities and um, in the 1980s, they actually gave uh, Tom Murphy um, uh, and his second in command, uh, uh, they, they turned over their ability to vote their shares as long as those, those two guys were at the top, at the top of the helm. So this was making explicit that sort of hands off, we trust you, um, 
with a with a smaller position than really a, a controlling position. Um, so I think they came at the game, if you will, a little bit differently. Um, but they, but you're absolutely right that they learned a ton from these managers. I mean, Jack Ringwald, so you know, a, a masterclass on insurance, how to price things appropriately. Um, Gene uh, Abeg. So the, one of the largest acquisition that Berkshire ever made in terms of its equity capital was in 1969, it bought uh, the Illinois National Bank and Trust uh, of Rockford. And that was 44% of Berkshire's equity capital. That was even bigger than um, <clears throat> the national indemnity. And they had that business until 1980 when they, they were forced to divest it. But that was upfront and personal, how to run a bank profitably, with it, without, you know, undue leverage, without taking these huge risks, it was like okay, a bank can really be run very well. And and I don't know this for sure, but he might have also picked up the idea <clears throat> from owning the bank, this, this idea of managing each side of the balance sheet separately. Mm. So I, again, I spent uh, ten years in banking. I actually spent some time on the bank's uh, Alco committee, uh, asset and liability uh, committee, which they they you look very explicitly at okay, what is your what is your assets earning? What are the yields? What are the durations, expected payoffs, all that? And what are your liability sources? Those, those two things are managed quite independently. Well, and again, I don't know if Buffett got this from the bank, but he, he since said, well, why does it matter? Why, why do we have to time the funding of acquisitions with uh, the actual acquisition itself? The best time to buy a company might not be the best time to finance it. Let's split these two. And, you know, a couple instances, borrow money in advance of actually needing the money. So th those are a couple ideas that I might attribute to Gina Beg and, and the, uh, the Rockford Bank. Um, Rose Blumpkin at uh, the, the Furniture Mart, mm -hmm. I think taught Buffett, you can have low prices and a ton of turnover that creates a, a moat for the business, really good economics uh, for owners in addition to sort of rewarding uh, your, your customer base. Um, and then back to insurance, you know, Ajit Jain, Buffett says he talks to him every single day. And, and I think there, it, it's, it's not only what I think he's, he's learned about insurance from Jane explicitly, but Ajit Jain didn't come to Berkshire Hathaway with any kind of insurance background. It was, here's, here's a guy that has sort of the raw material. He has the, the aptitude to learn. We can mold him. So I think that was another one. And then just, um, I guess, finally, another one that comes to mind is Ralph Shea at uh, Scott Fetzer, which was, again, a, a sort of a transformative acquisition in the, in the mid-1980s, 1986, I believe, where it basically doubled Berkshire Hathaway's revenue base. Um, it was just, it was, a, it was a huge acquisition at the time, but it was a lot of little businesses that didn't grow very much. Mm -hmm. And, and that business literally faded to a footnote in the Berkshire Hathaway financial statements in 2004, which I thought was just really interesting. But Buffett, uh, I forget when he, he said this, uh, when, it was when, when Shea retired, he said, you know, he's earned his place in the Berkshire Hall of Fame. Well, hmm. why is that? That's because he took this business, not only, he returned more than 100% of net income to Berkshire Hathaway in the form of dividends. In other words, he improved operations. He increased return on capital 
and used less capital to do it. And he returned that excess uh, to Omaha. So it was another example of good business, doesn't have to grow. And you have a guy running two dozen uh, little businesses and operating on all these uh, boards in, uh, uh, I think it was Cincinnati or somewhere in Ohio that, that he lived. So, I mean, just, just showing Buffett the power of what humans can achieve. Um, a lot of these managers taught him. I've thrown a lot at you. So. No, I think this is, <laughs> I think it's great. And I think it's important because to me, a lot of what Buffett and sometimes Mugger, what they say, like you hear something and it sounds kind of trite, kind of obvious. And you're like, oh, okay. Well, that's, I, I felt like I already knew, like it sounds just intuitive. And and then it's like this Munger saying of like, take a simple idea and take it seriously, right? And like, as you start thinking about this, to me, it, it just becomes increasingly clear how important um, managers and, and talent are. And Buffett will say it over over again, and I still don't get it, right? Or, or in the sense, like, I still don't understand how important it actually is, especially as you point out, if you're a stock picker or you have that mindset, um, you're really picking um, the people to run it for you. And if, and if you were to make major mistakes there, um, the whole thing basically doesn't work, right? Like, it, that's, that's just, um, to me, always important to, to remember. I'm also, I'm curious if you have an opinion on this, because I'm always, I'm, I'm struck by, Buffett saying like, okay, I want, I'm now betting on wonderful businesses. Um, and then he keeps operating a lot of his capital in industries that are large and extremely competitive and where the average business is not a good business, right? Whether that's insurance or retail in some cases. Um, and where, where he figures out a business that has either, you know, a low cost mode or something else that makes it a wonderful business. Um, but I mean, there's other approaches, right? There's other conglomerates that will say like, oh, I, I'm going very specifically for this market where, you know, where, let's call it a, a trans or something where they're like, I'm, I figure out like, there's a lot of great businesses in this area. And I, and it strikes me that, you know, I, I, I was thinking like, why does he keep coming back to, you know, airlines, which didn't work out, but like retail and like more insurance businesses, more, more businesses that may be wonderful individually, but where he says the market in aggregate it's not great. And the average business in insurance is not a great business. Um, is that just like his original circle of competence or like, how do you think about the, the ultimately, I guess that the types of businesses or, or modes that he picks up? Uh, Cause I, I get confused over this sometimes. I'm like, why doesn't he gravitate just like better markets? Like why didn't he at some point like completely switch? Uh, or maybe it's just too obvious. Like, you know, I, like, I'm curious if you have a, if this resonates, this, this question. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a good question. Um, and I think it's probably a lot of the reasons you, you mentioned, you know, first his circle of competence. I mean, he, I, I mean, how many people would say no to buying any Microsoft when, you know, the, the founder of Microsoft, you know, flies in in a helicopter and, and, has dinner with you and you have, you have him at your disposal and you say, Nope, still not going to buy. So he, he really, I mean, that, that shows his, his discipline. He really has to know the business. Um, I think there's another, there's the element of serendipity, this, you know, idea of no master plan that, Hey, you know, 
this business is available. Let's make an offer for it. Or, um, you know, that there's, there's that element. Um, so I, I think it's just kind of, uh, a, a lot of the, a, a lot of the above, you know, there's, he, I, he, he likes businesses. I think the circle of competence thing is probably the biggest, but to, to, to have businesses that have a demonstrated track record, even if it's in an industry that isn't, uh, you know, as you as you say, maybe it's sort of average, but there's little pockets where there's some good players. Um, you know, that history of having good operations, uh, I think, is pretty in, important to Buffett. That that demonstrated track record, the yeah. ability to um, distribute cash. But I mean, they they all weren't perfect. I mean, when you look back in Berkshire's history, they bought Buffalo News in the late uh, late seventies, nineteen seventy seven. You know, for thirty five million its profits went basically to zero for a couple of years while they fought it out with um, with their competitor. So that was certainly a, a probabilistic bet in the sense of, okay, we're going to bet on the two newspaper town becoming the one newspaper town. Um, so it wasn't that they weren't all home runs from that sense. Um, but again, I, I think that there were businesses that he, he understand, he understood. Um, yeah, I, and they I, and they've said if they were younger, they would go into maybe picking technology stocks. They've 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 uh, they've highlighted their own inadequacies in, in that regard. So um, I don't know. I mean, I, again, once they got big enough to sort of get on people's radars, he was in the Forbes 400. You know, bumping into the owner uh, of a business uh, in New York City having that that owner say hey I'm, I'm interested in selling it or you know cold calls getting a, a chunk of metal on his his desk in, the, in case of my tech you know hey I don't understand this business oh wait <clears throat> here's a one-page letter that kind of explains it yeah let's buy this thing um, so he I, I think you know building products again that's one that kind of blossomed just partly serendipity but I think partially because he was looking so Shaw, Shaw Carpet in the early 2000s, Benjamin Moore Paint around the same time, Justin Brands, which has uh, the footwear operations, but also Acme Brick was under that heading at that time. It was kind of like, okay, I understand this. And also, you know, you're on, you're on people's radar. So when you have, um, in, a, in a negative sense, <clears throat> um, they bought a bunch of these shoe companies in the early 90s. Well, one of them led to buying Dexter Shoe in 1993. Buffett says it was his worst mistake ever because he used 25,000 uh, Class A shares uh, to, to buy that business. He issued stock, thought he was getting value, but he wasn't. And, and the industry you know, kind of cratered afterwards. So they weren't all good. And there, there definitely were some, some failures. I mean, you could make the argument that buying the preferred stock of US Air was a mistake, even though it worked out well, right? Like bad, bad investment decision, good result, still a bad investment decision, just turned out pretty well. Now you can make the argument that he set himself up for success by sort of crafting the probabilities and the payoffs in such a way that if he was right, compensated for him. But th there have been plenty explicit or sort of um, opportunity cost failures over Berkshire Hathaway's life cycle that I think are, are kind of forgotten to look at it today.
Yeah, you you have. I, I was actually just thinking about um, so two two things I want to tie together. One is so the way he got into speaking to the opportunism, the way he got into blue chip stamps, right? There was this forced divestiture, and um, I think the Justice Department is like an anti antitrust thing, and so there was basically a, a way to buy stock from um, sellers who were kind of motivated by non-economic factors who just like didn't want to hold the stock. Um, and you put together a chart with purchase multiples and going in returns. Because in the back of my mind, I was thinking like, okay, um, right, there's this kind of debate of like, okay, where does Berkshire's return come from? Is it the leverage? Is it the stock picking? Is it, you know, buying, you know, things? Is it like an accident of history? Because, you know, multiples were so, like valuations were so cheap. And I was thinking, like, are there more examples of things like uh, blue chip stamps where he found um, something that um, you know was 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 just a very shrewd purchase and, and very undervalued and and maybe you know a, a motivated seller. But from that chart, it looks like you you wrote most going in returns of acquisitions fell in the range of seven to fifteen percent. Like. There are outliers with with very with exceptional going in returns, but it doesn't look like there was a pattern of like oh he just happened to find the the craziest deals. A lot of it looks like well I bought a good business at a reasonable going in return. How do you think about the I guess the sources of return there or like um, deconstructing that? Is it just you know buy the wonderful business, reallocate and like put some leverage on top, or like how do you think about how it all comes together as you know in terms of performance? Yeah, so I, I guess just a couple things there. Um, <clears throat> you know, this whole concept of, of going in return, you know, I, I think obviously Buffett thinks about a, a lot when he buys a business. The competitors, the, the dynamic, sort of the industry, how it's evolved, all that stuff. Um, but really sort of when it comes down to it, it's like you, you're, you have a business that's generating so much in revenues per dollar of underlying capital you have margins and those two things multiplied by each other are return on capital. Like you can kind of break it down that way, sort of like a DuPont uh, analysis. Um, really, it sort of comes down to those things. So, you know, people say, oh, geez, look at this industry. It has such high profit margins or geez, look at these terrible profit margins. That's not enough information to, to, to tell you enough about a business because you don't have the capital intensity. Yeah. So the, the way that I, I think Buffett sort of simplifies things. And again, there's lots more that hangs off of this, but you, you have these sort of two dynamics of uh, capital turnover and margins, but really what, what are you trying to do as an investor? You, you're looking for the good business. And so you have that, that sort of underlying analysis and I'll use Scott Fetzer as an example. Scott Fetzer was earning, you know, mid to low 30% on its capital. That's the business. Now, as an investor in the stock or in Berkshire's case, buying 100% of the business, you're buying that underlying capital at a premium generally. So that going in return gets reduced by that. So in Scott Fetzer's case, <clears throat> I think their going in return was about 25%. So still a really good return, which again was kind of crazy at the time. Mid-1980s, it was a failed uh, uh, ESOP takeover. 
why the heck anybody wouldn't want to buy a business earning 34% for a going in return of 25%? I don't know. Uh, but, it, but then I ended up in, in Berkshire's lap. Um, so you have this sort of dynamic of the, the early days finding really good businesses like C's and having a pretty modest multiple. So in C's case, they paid about three times uh, book value. Um, so you have those sort of early businesses of buying really good businesses at really good prices. Then you have the later days of buying really good businesses or pretty good businesses at higher multiples because the market's just gotten efficient over time. Yeah, um, yeah. But you still have the, the dynamic of reinvestment going on. So um, returns came down, but you still have the underlying business. So again, just to continue on Scott Fetzer, even though it didn't grow, um, if you paid, say you paid twice for a business, let's just use a, just use a, a plain example. If you, if you had a business earning 30% on capital and you paid two times that capital for the business, your going in return would be 30 divided by two because 15. The important part is if that business can grow, and that's the key, you don't have to reinvest at 2x the capital you get to reinvest at 1x the capital. So that marginal capital gets, in this example, reinvested at 30%. That drags up your going in return over time. But I, I think Buffett's very clear in pointing out that you can't pay too much for growth. Like you can't have a going in return of you know two or 3%, even if it grows at a pretty enormous rate the time value of money just destroys any kind of return that you have. So I think he always looks for the good business. And then he has this sort of secondary uh, analysis, if you will, of what are the reinvestment opportunities, you know, and he's fine, you know, as long as the purchase price reflects it, he's fine taking the dividends and finding a, another place for them. And if the business can reinvest that capital, you know, let's, let's go and do that. Um, and that plays out in in the extreme in the case of the energy business, where you're still getting, in many cases, 11, 12% regulated return, which is nothing to sneeze at, um, but it's it's limited and it's regulated. Um, and I think I've gone way off on sort of a tangent here, but hopefully that answers your original question. Yeah, no, I think, no, but this is exactly, I think, the important part. Um, to, I mean, and obviously in the chart, right, you have the going in return, but then the question is like, at what rates can you reinvest and what growth potential is there? And I think he points out repeatedly, right, the, in Berkshire's case, if there isn't a lot of growth potential at the same or better return on capital, you wouldn't put the capital to work there. You would just divert it to somewhere with a better opportunity within the organization. But in a lot of other businesses, right, people would try to continue to build that business, even though there isn't that right reinvestment opportunity. So I think that comes back to kind of the the uniqueness of the structure and the discipline. Um, I I have this like thought in the back of my mind. I'm like, okay, obviously people have tried to replicate the model, right, with other insurance operations and, and other conglomerates. Where people get inspired in all sorts of ways. Um, and then people also look for, you know, the next quote unquote, the next Warren Buffett, whether that's, you know, a manager, like investment, like a hedge fund manager or others, like there's, there's like a, a rotating cast of people who get assigned that label. And usually it's a bad thing for, in terms of their performance. <laughs> I'm curious how you think about that. Um, 
because there is, as you pointed out, there's luck, there's timing, there's a lot of things you can't replicate today. But is that an interesting question to you? And like you as an investor, like, is that, are you interested in like finding, you know, somebody who like tries to build something similar or like has shared characteristics or like, how do you think about the question of like, is there going to be another one like him or another company like it? Or is it just sort of this unique, uh, Chris Blumstrand uh, called it a, a fluke of history. And I'm, I'm kind of going back and forth on this. Like, is this something to look out for? Or how do you think about that question? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I put it in the book that I think at the very end that, you know, I, I will, I'll never say never, but it would be highly unlikely to find, I mean, you just have all, you have a Lollapalooza to use a, a Charlie Munger term. You have starting, starting when they're, they're able to shoot fish in a barrel. You have a guy that, you know, uh, Buffett didn't have a heart attack like, like Blue Dorn. Um, you know, just all of these things just kind of lined up. Uh, so a lot of it is luck, timing, um, interest. I mean, you have a guy that's just wired for this. Um, you have a guy that, um, you know, you could argue kind of neglected his family in, in his early days. I mean, are people willing to do that? Um, for me, I think it's kind of, uh, to, to, to use the the super is it the super investors of, of Graham and Dodd's bill, you know, Buffett talking about this clan of of people that grew up and really internalized Ben Graham had it was no surprise that they had success in their later days uh, because they had this foundation. To me, that's that's enough. Like that's enough for me. Um, you know it. To, to, for me personally, to have all of these wonderful, I mean, beyond business lessons, life lessons, taking the high road, trusting people, um, you know, just all of these things, um, in addition to all this wonderful business lessons that Buffett has shared with us, what to look for, how to think about certain businesses, how to think about change, um, just all of that, I think, is enough that I feel very confident hanging my hat on this approach because it just totally resonates with me. And then, you know, Chris Bloomstrand's another one that's in, in this sort of uh, uh, hard into the, the Berkshire orbit. And you have all of these people that have centered themselves around Buffett and Berkshire. And, and so I, I don't spend any time whatsoever trying to find the next Warren Buffett. I think it's probably impossible. But there, that said, um, you have to kind of be careful today, and I won't use an explicit example, but um, well, the, the Outsiders is a book that focuses mm. on these CEOs that kind of had these these characteristics. Well, you know, Google the word moat, sustainable competitive advantage. There's a risk that all of these things that Buffett was talking about early on, others that maybe aren't so good and i found this in one particular case the ceo that was just trying a little too hard to be like an outsider and i bought some of the stock and ended up selling it because it just kind of made me a little bit uncomfortable and i won't name the name but there's others that have clearly latched onto the berkshire hathaway buffett mold and just get it you know yeah. Um, and, and to that extent, I think that's a good thing. Although, like I said, you, you do have to be careful because, um, you have others that kind of miss, misuse it. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I agree. I, I, I think it's unlikely we'll see something exactly like it. Um, 
but there are a lot of qualities and ideas and methods where um, I think Michael, I, I asked Michael Lobeson about this once where he was an early or like invested in Amazon and, and the way it came to him was somebody was like, Hey, you should check out these shareholder letters. These people also, you know, they, they speak a language that you'd understand and they speak in these similar concepts, which were kind of adopted from Berkshire Hathaway. So I feel like there's, there is that kind of shared language and, and I guess culture or, or, or principles or ideas. And it's like, if you recognize that it could be worth uh, going that, that direction, like learning more without explicitly trying to replicate something that is just really as, as, as I think you make a great point in the book is really, really unique and unique in its longevity and, and success in, in, in many ways. Um, well, this was terrific, Adam. I, I, I thank you very much. And I'm going to share, I guess, some of my favorite quotes and, and, and a couple of charts from the book, which I think is, I mean, I guess it is for the enthusiast, but like I've, I've learned a ton and I think you've made a great, I think you made it very, um, visible to me, kind of the arc and evolution of the business, which I think can get lost because there's just frankly so much of it, right? There's like so much history in Berkshire. Yeah, there, there really is. And, and, and I, one reason, you know, I kind of wrote the book, I wrote the book cause it was, it was the book I always wanted, but never found. But one of those groups that I wanted to write the book for was, you know, the college student just graduating today reads some Buffett's letters and goes, oh my gosh, this is incredible. Like, how do I learn more? And you have this, you have really, how do you, how do you relive now 55 years of Berkshire Hathaway under Warren yeah. Buffett in a digestible way? Now, I would absolutely encourage everybody to do what I did, read, you know, all the annual reports and the 10Ks, watch the annual uh, meetings, dig into all this stuff, you know, you will absolutely benefit from doing that. So in the context of, you know, 10,000 plus pages, uh, which is roughly my source material, the 750 pages of my book is, is fairly <laughs> concise. So to the extent right. that, you know, that new shareholder or new student wants to learn about Berkshire's history and learn really just all about business, that's just so wonderful about this, just the the teachings. And I guess, you know, just to kind of finish your, your last uh, question there, like to the extent that to the extent that Berkshire's existence has changed the thinking and has furthered sort of best practices in, in business and capital allocation, you know, that's, that's quite the legacy too. I mean, they've taught yeah. this next generation how to think about opportunity cost, how to think about capital allocation. Um, now, do other managers fully embrace that and actually do what's best all the time? No, but... Um, I think we're moving in a, in a good direction and that's ultimately what's better for society. So yeah, I agree. quite the legacy. Uh, 100% agree. Well, thank you. 